Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Edward, one of your hosts today. And I'm Samantha. Yes, we're back again, excited for the seventh episode of the second season, entitled Mirror Mirror. And I'm Karen. Yes, we're back with even more stories from new authors. And in this episode, we hear the stories of three young authors who, at one point or another, find themselves staring in the mirror and encountering more than just their own reflection. Our first piece is by Edward Cerate and was written on a study abroad trip to Tanzania. Edward is a 22-year-old lightweight Bolivian-American from Queens, New York, who is currently a senior at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Here, he is majoring in international criminal justice with a minor in writing, and when not in school, you can find him handing out towels to New York City's elites at Equinox's front desk. Aside from work in school, Edward dances with a nonprofit organization called Fraternidad Cultural Pasión Bolivian, Bolivian Passion, participating in festivals, parades, and performances as a dancer of several traditional styles, tinkus, tobas, chaquera, salaque, macheteros, and cuecha chaqueña. He can also be found making South American bracelets and selling them in the gentrified parts of New York at regulated prices to feed his Pokemon puppy, Suicune. Wild tall door, multiple shades of suffered brown, looms over me. I stare back at its patches of chipped paint. Their shapes and haphazard arrangements across the door surface remind me of scabs on skin. Old, misshapen, remnants of accidents and assaults. This is my abstract view as I lower myself into a squat in a man's room stall in the town of Bagamoyo, Tanzania. The town where, not so long ago, Newly captured slaves reached the coast after a six-month walk from their homes on the East African interior. Here in Bagamoyo, a place that means lay down your heart, all hope was left on shore, left behind, much like the babies the newly captured slave mothers were forced to leave on the side of the road in order to carry more ivory. I can't know how they felt to lay down their hearts here. But I know that now, in this stall, I am sitting about to lay down my pride. I look down at my underwear, clinging onto the thicks of my calves to find a rebellious brown stain, glaring back at me. Shit. A stain can mean many things. An accidental drop of bleach on one's pants for mopping the mess a puppy left behind when potty training could be a reminder in its absence of color, of love. For women, a stain can celebrate fertility. It can even save your life on your wedding night in places where proof of virginity is required. But for me, stains have always meant trouble. Like the ones left on my childhood skin after my father would drag me by the arm. I guess I always walked too slow to keep up with the Manhattan crowd. I tried to hide them, those bruises 
in second grade. But my stained forearms would become visible each year when the flowers returned. When, when the winter clothes were sealed away, it was in the spring that my pale complexion would betray me and show shades of deteriorated green, shadowed in the hints of bloodshot violet. One year, Tina, a short, slender Asian girl with needlepoint hair, would look at my forearm and suggest soap. That'll clean the poop off, she said, mistaking my bruises for filth. And... You should wipe with paper instead of your arm next time. <sighs> Luckily, there is paper in this stall. Nonetheless, I find myself here on this porcelain seat, contemplating my life at its lowest point. Contemplating, like Tina suggested, how to wipe the poop off. Crap, this will never work. And I'm certainly not brave enough to go all commando. Plus, I conveniently chose thin gypsy pants today. They're basically transparent. Great. I find myself forced to stuff my wet undies with paper, knowing that I have to hurry. Everyone is probably waiting for me, I imagine them noticing. I'm still gone. I have to get back, but what if they smell me? I sneak out from the stall and run into my castmate from our study abroad group. Yes, she always carries baby wipes. I really need one of your thingies there. I'll tell you why later. She gives me two, and I rush back to the stall. The Bagamoyan stall instantly morphs into a pop-up laundry joint where I furiously scrub the wipe against the thinning cloth. Exiting the stall, I find my similar self above the sink. I look at the reflection, hair tied up, face flushed, ashamed with a newly born freckled face ovened by the African sun. I'm from the Amazon, I'd boast of my Bolivian heritage just a few days ago. <laughs> so exotic. Let me tell you, that ain't shit here. In Africa, your hair will roast into split ends. Your pits will reek of spice from the concealed armpits that the suggested dress code enforces. Your underwear will suffer ponds of swamp ass and shit stains, even if you're completely certain you didn't drink the sink water. And even when you try to clean the day's residue from your tired, exhausted body, you may only find 10 to 20 droplets of water at a time sliding from the faucet and onto your caramel skin. And even if the water pressure is strong enough to clean you, it's surely too cold to enjoy. As I find myself lost and ashamed of my filth, my body, my inability to stay stain-free in Africa, I'm suddenly swallowed whole by the power of the freckle. A nostalgia fills me, and I feel a sense of calm. I'm a couple of shades darker now, I realize. And now, I actually look like her son. My mom's face is stained with freckles too. Those which as a child once shared her cheeks with the dust the Amazon wind brought in dry season. Mugre, she calls it, the Spanish term for grime stains on skin. Her head heavy with natural oils as her scalp baked under the midday sun rays. Not even her hair could escape the stains of underprivilege. It's shown a brassy sun stain called Auburn in the U.S., but Pelo de Cunumi in Bolivia. 
that which means the ruined sunburnt hair of wandering straight children. Some days, she cried. Her cloth diapers full of shit forced discomfort upon her. Diapers that demanded hand washing 10 to 20 times a day, depending on how well that niña's tummy could hold solids. If solids were even available at all. Her mother was often too busy to change her, she'd tell me. She was in pursuit of a better life, for milk even. She was too busy to worry about stains. Is it a privilege to worry about stains? And I find myself wondering, how, how long would it take to wash the stains from a cloth diaper used over and over, from a dress worn seven days a week by a toddler, Dried crusted soup and milk droplets matching the dried mucus at her nostrils. Did the stains ever come out? Was it even worth trying after a while? My mother lived a life full of stains. Just like the history of this place, Bagamoyo. A shore stained with the filth of poverty, the blood and tears of hundreds of thousands of slaves. A stain can mean a lot of things, I realize here. But mine is nothing to complain about. Oh my goodness, Edward. This story is absolutely amazing. Literally, thousand time I heard it, and it never really gets old. It's honestly beautiful. Towards the beginning of this piece, it starts with you sitting in a squat in Bagamoyo and laying down this pride that you speak of and exclaiming shit as you look down at your underwear. Um, it's such jarring imagery and not common at all to begin with. Like actual, like there's actual shit. Um, <laughs> in this makeshift laundromat, as you call the bathroom, when you're literally scrubbing it out of your underwear and the imagery of swamp ass that makes us feel so uncomfortable yeah. to even think of to like hear it makes us squirm it's definitely uncomfortable to feel <laughs> mm -hmm. why would you choose to begin with this this way like was it to get our attention like what was your reasoning and you read this at travelogue um at the Adi theater and in front of myself and so many people night after night and now for the podcast to essentially you know immortal immortalize <laughs> to essentially immortalize you talking about shit forever so were you ever <laughs> embarrassed to begin this way or like what was your reasoning behind it um well i primarily wanted to um break on the casual talk that comes with africa like it's always about poverty it's always about safari it's always about orphans which are always the main the main subjects that are mentioned throughout in movies, in in other writings and stuff like that. So I wanted to start with like, I wanted to personalize the piece because that's like, I feel like that moment changed me. <laughs> moment changed me. I'm like, oh my God. I can't. I was like, I can't. Fucking worrying about <laughs> shit stain. I'm like, what am I? Like slapping myself in front of the mirror. Like, get your shit together like <laughs> i can imagine i was like Argh. like i was so upset with myself afterwards because i was like i can't believe i like worried a whole day like mm -hmm. hyperventilating like i was like i was like i was like sitting at on the sand i was like <laughs> i was like can they smell it can they see it oh my god 
<laughs> so I just wanted to like um impersonate that sensation that I felt that day because I was like tense as hell the whole day. Like mm -hmm. I couldn't. I never like, seen you once like that because I also um went on the trip with him. I never seen you once tense. So I'm like really wondering what day this was. <laughs> it was the day when we went um to the ocean. Oh, okay. it was um. So why don't you just take a dip in the ocean? <laughs> I did, but I was like, what if it made it worse? Oh, God. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> how do you cure a swamp ass by going into more water? How do you get rid of the stain? I was like, yo, Fruit of the Loom isn't holding it down. Oh, God. I was like, because, <laughs> like, I was like, it's not coming out. And then, like, I was like, then I, I like, requested a baby wipe. But, like, overall, like, I wanted, like, just to, like, t show these people the other side of mm -hmm. like the usual experience i wanted mm -hmm. them to like witness mm -hmm. or like for i can portray to them like this side of my this moment that mm -hmm. sort of like impacted me throughout the trip which also gave me us made me aware of like this privilege that because I, I as a person of color as a hispanic bolivian latino um i was never raised with like such privilege like always like like the stuff that usually every every kid gets to have like expensive stuff, expensive clothes. Right. But my mother, however, always kept us like whenever we'd get a stain, she tells, "Oh, go change," or like, "Oh, give me that, I'll wash it for you." Mm. And so with that, she always never wanted me to have um a single stain on my face or like a freckles, even though her face is like covered in like these these I I I love her freckles, so like I always like would pinch her cheek and try to put it on mine. Aww, so that's I so <laughs> like. I was like, give me some. So, and like, when I'd see like, I think I have like one here, which is like my prized possession on my face, like one little freckle. So like when I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yes, finally I have a freckle. So being there like gave me um, sort of an eye opener as to regards of what like this, this significance of privilege that I experienced in Africa which um, made it aware of, like, the surrounding individuals that were present in the present location. Yeah, and you showed that really beautifully with the images of stains in your piece. Like, it was it was really cool how you did that, and, like, you braided both the stains that were happening to you presently in Africa with the, with the shit stain and, like, the stains from your, your mother's country and then also from your childhood, like, how you just braided those three things so beautifully. Like, it came out really good. What was the writing process like for that? Um, I wanted to, I, I, I was trying to figure out, like, what this reminded, like, what the, what being in Africa reminded me of. Because I remember arriving, and I was like, this air smells familiar. And it reminded me of whenever we'd arrive at um the airport in Vito Vito, Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And, like, it was similar experiences, because when we lived, when I lived for two years in South America, like, we'd always, like play in the park be like running around sweating full of like stains and mud because mm -hmm. we were like always outside and in this place which is Bagamoyo in Tanzania overall like all these different situations was which gave us um we were always out and like especially like the orphanages like yeah. we would be like playing like this game and came Twinder. back with sweat so and much dirt. stains <laughs> yeah so much like mud mm -hmm. i like scraped so many things mm -hmm. and it was just like it just like reminded me of like 
being in South America again and overall, which allowed me to create this sense of And seeing rating. that those kids really didn't mm-hmm. care about stains because yeah. that was the least of their worries. They didn't exactly. care about the mud. I love that. Yeah, I never really thought about that. That's really cool. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and especially, like, how these kids aren't necessarily thinking about these stains. And then the tie back to how when you were a kid, you were kind of forced to think about stains. Um, not necessarily the ones that your mother was occupied with, but the ones that were on you and on your person. Because those were the ones that, at the end of the day, couldn't come out. And those were the ones that, that took days and that they signified something that you didn't like. like. And it's interesting how like worrying about stains becomes more of a mature thing. Like your mom worried later on in life and, you, and then you worried um you know, in this experience now, later on in life, but mm-hmm. you also did when you were a kid because that kind of forced you to grow up that experience. That's something that's just really beautifully noted in your piece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wow. And also, there are stains that are like on your clothes and stuff that signify a different kind of trauma that comes with poverty. Um, and that was a really important link because um, your mom grew up somewhere different. She grew up in Bolivia. And when you come here is kind of that difference where your stains do kind of mean something because they mean that you're unkept and they mean all these different things that you say. Um, And there is like a fear of poverty because if you have that stain, then it means that you couldn't like afford to wash your clothes like often enough. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit more about that and that connection? The connection with my mother and the stains that she um, grew up with throughout her childhood and, like, her mid-teens. I felt like they resonated um, in my mind when I was sort of trying to rate things, trying to connect things, trying to make them relevant to each other. Being that um, she always um, wore this dress that was, like, her favorite dress. Because, you know, these... You see, you see these little girls, especially like in like Hispanic culture, like they have the favorite dress they always wear, even if it's like dirty and like unwashed. Um, even if it has like broken little stitches or little tear, they'll always want to wear. It. And she always wore this little dress that like it was like a shoulder exposed dress, mm. and like she always wore it and posed in it, and like in pictures. E- in pictures, she'd always pose in it. The ones I've seen, like, when she'd show us her um, black and white pictures from, like, mm-hmm. like before she got married and, like, when she was with her cousins in in El Beni. So, um, yeah, I wanted to make this connection because she'd always, like, want us to, to stay away from that. She mm-hmm. never wanted us to be like her. She always wanted us to be, like, in a sense, um... She wanted to keep us clean, mm-hmm. in a sense, like, not, like, have to go, but, like, she went through with regards to economic circumstance and, like, mm-hmm. um, appearance-wise, because, like, because, like, she tells me, like, like neighbors and, like, other higher-end siblings, like, heavily judge them for, like, having these, like, worn, to- <laughs> worn clothes and, like, stains on, like, the dust 
and like the chanclas and stuff like that. So stains do have um a relevant connection with regards to poverty, to physical and like appear and trauma appearance wise. So thanks for noting that. Thank you so much for being here, Edward. Mm-hmm. We love to hear your story again. Thank you. And mm-hmm. we'd love to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for, Actually, not, thanks for not growing tired of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking, yeah Never. Because speaking of that, Edward's the only person that's been yes. on the podcast three, three times. times. That's a record. Because he's a beautiful writer. Yes. <laughs> an award-winning writer. Yes, yeah. an award-winning I'm just going to keep bragging about you. Yeah, we're just going to keep talking about Edward. Let's fade out. Let's just, like, three times. our next story was also written in tanzania and is by patricia campbell patricia is a native new yorker working on her bachelor's degree in english she is still undecided on a future career However, she hopes that through doing all the things that she loves, she will eventually find her place in this world. In her spare time, you can find her reading manga, rewatching Dragon Ball Z for the hundredth time, and annoying her friends by singing high school musical songs on a regular basis. Let's take a listen to Patricia's piece entitled Braids. You are sitting on the hard ground with six hands in your hair. Thirty unfamiliar fingers twist and intertwine countless bunches of threes that weren't originally part of you weren't born of your scalp, but are now slowly multiplying from it as you get your hair braided. Here, in Tanzania, you remain quiet, listening to the soothing tones of their conversation without paying attention to their words. You can't understand them anyway, since they speak in their native Kiswahili tongue. You know you can't join in, even if you wanted to. You stare at the ground and say nothing, and you realize for the first time that you are no longer home. You don't usually allow strangers in your hair. In fact, your hair is probably one of your most favorite physical features, considering you detest most of your gigantic body. It's your dark brown crown of jewels, that which you insisted was actually black to your preschool teacher at age four, to which she simply replied, it's brown, Patricia. Still, Black or brown, you always loved it. It was your hair that all your friends in your black circle wanted to play with when you were little. Your hair is so nice and long, they'd say, and you'd point to someone else, someone lighter, someone with no slave blood coursing through their veins in order to show them what real hair length was. But that was exactly their point. Your nearly shoulder-length hair really was long for a black girl. You didn't quite understand what that meant, but you liked the attention this compliment brought. This is why you usually avoid braids. You usually try to show off your shoulder-length black girl pride. Oh my gosh, were these braids a mistake? Should you not have paid for these twisted charades already reaching long down your back? What did you do, Patricia? You still remember that day a few weeks before you departed for Tanzania. You were sitting in the black salon chair in Miss Janelle's backyard storehouse in the Bronx, that which she converted into a hair salon, a place she could call her own instead of renting a chair. The yellow walls painted with flamingos and other things you can't remember felt familiar. But now, they felt far away. Just as she started to blow out your wet hair, you turned to your mother and asked, 
What am I doing with my hair for Tanzania? Ask Miss Janelle, she replied. I guess you should have it braided, Miss Janelle suggested. Well, I started cautiously. Someone did mention that we could get our hair braided when we get there on the first day. You had secretly hoped that she would insist you get it done here, in the Bronx, where you've had your hair groomed for what seems like an eternity. Here, where almost every style you've ever had was born. Styles born from her long brown dancing fingers. Weddings, funerals, proms, graduations, and more. Miss Janelle's hands had prepared your head for every milestone. Your trip to Tanzania should, of course, be no exception. Right? Oh, then you should get it done there, she said. Or not, you thought. Yes, and have them braid it in one of those African styles. Oh, who cares what style they're in? They're just braids. Let's just do it here, you scream inside. But instead, you reply, okay. Why was she all for it? Wouldn't it be more money in her pocket to get it done here? Wasn't she worried that they'd somehow mess it up? Why wasn't she against this? More importantly, why were you so against it to begin with? You're not sure, but it feels wrong, and you slowly try to accept and embrace the fact that Miss Janelle won't be the one braiding your hair. And so, here you are, sitting on the floor while the ladies boast their fingers' patient choreography. Some of your classmates walk by, snapping photos. You smile briefly while secretly hoping they'll stay a little longer, but they don't. Hair braiding takes a long time. Of course they don't want to stay. Not that you could see them properly if they had anyways, at least not with the way these ladies had braided the front of your hair and left the strands dangling in your face. Miss Janelle would have saved the front of your hair for last. Once in a while, Serapia and Jackie, two of the Tanzanian college students working with us all month as interpreters, road managers, and local culture experts turn to you and ask, are you okay? You just nod. Patricia's so quiet, they later joke which makes you smile. Your father and extended family pronounce your name the exact same way. You know you should at least respond with words, so you tell them, I'm okay, which is true. You are okay. You're alive, breathing in and out the fresh African air that has the same burning smell as your parents' native land of Jamaica, the land you haven't set foot on since you buried your grandma back in 2004. You're fine, but you feel like you don't belong in this world. You feel guilty for only being able to say, Mambo, and even that is a miracle in itself. Just yesterday, you would have sworn Jumbo was the way to say hello, which made it even more confusing to find out that both are used. Why can't they just pick one if that's the case? You feel guilty again. You know you don't belong in this world, even if you are of African descent. One of the ladies is feeling your hair and commenting, but once again, you don't know what she's saying. Jackie can sense your curiosity, so she leans down. She says your hair is soft, she tells you. You're not sure if that's a compliment, because you're aware that coarse hair is easier to braid and keeps the hair in longer. You witnessed it yourself the day you'd watch your Dominican friend struggle to keep one of her braids from sliding off the silky hair she previously straightened. She'd been disgusted by her natural curls. You question why you, too, relaxed your hair at the beginning of May, knowing full well that you might get your hair braided the next month. You wonder why you ever got your hair relaxed at all. You think about the time you thought you were different from other girls and never changed anything about yourself for a boy. Then you remember second grade, when the boy you liked said he liked Bianca's hair. Bianca, with the straight hair and bangs. 
Soon after, you remember requesting to straighten your hair with a relaxer, and you'd beg your mom to let you cut your hair into bangs. You'd later find out that even one scratch itch before a relaxer could result in a deep, agonizing, painful burn on your head. A few minutes after the sour-smelling white cream graced your scalp, your whole head felt like the fields of fire Smokey the Bear always warned of. Tears had rolled down your face as Miss Janelle rushed you to the sink to rinse out the straightener. The water may have stopped the fire, but it couldn't contain the tears and screams of your seven-year-old self. Of course. The pain of the previous day slowly faded as your crush was quick to notice your new look. You got the reaction you suffered for. Your hair looks different, she said. What did you do? It looks nice. You had to wait another year for him to say I like you. A romance so strong it lasted exactly one week. Was it all worth it? You aren't sure. Your crush faded with time, but your relaxers never did. You kept getting them and getting them and getting them, burning and straightening and pressing and well. Would you like your hair done in any particular style, Jackie asked. You don't really care. You just want this to be finished. But wait, does this mean it's done? Can you finally see what you're stuck with for the next month? You suddenly want to say thank you. So you ask and she teaches you how. Asante? Asante? You're sure you butchered that. She must be thinking, you're such a muzungu. That's the term for a dizzy traveler, one classically white and linked to Africa's imperialistic and touristic history. You also wonder if she's confused by the fact that you're a black muzungu. After deciding you don't care about the braiding style choices, you are told that you're done. You get up nervously. Asante, you tell the ladies carefully as you rush off to find a mirror to see the damage you've done. As you walk down the cement stairs of the compound, you become aware of your hair length for the first time. It falls heavy and tight against your aching scalp. You didn't mean for it to be so long. Have you made a mistake? You knew you shouldn't have done it here. You shame yourself. But the people you've passed by in the dining area seem to like it. You get to your room, and there, in the mirror, there she is. There's you. You stare into the mirror. She looks like you, yet at the same time, she doesn't. You look at the long strands flowing almost underneath your butt and see that there are some burgundy hairs in the mix. Not black, not brown, some red. You think about how you really aren't the type to stray from the basic colors, but you must admit, you sort of like their decision. Maybe a pop of color, something different, is needed once in a while, you think, to change your perspective. You wonder, is your perspective changed? You look forward to the next few weeks with this hair. You feel grateful that you got to have this done here, on this hot piece of earth, the birthplace of your displaced Jamaican ancestors. You realize that you are enamored with your braids, with the African hands that birthed them. And you actually consider keeping this style forever. But deep down, you know full well that when you return home, you'll probably have your hair straightened again. Sure, braids are durable, beautiful, a source of strength and pride for many across the widely stretched multi-eclectic African diaspora. But you're still proud, 
proud that your hair is long for a black girl. Even though you know what that means, know how disparaging that is, know you've been taught to think things like that. Even still, you know you'll run back to those ideals, he relaxes, and to Miss Janelle. At home, in the Bronx, as soon as you can. Damn. <laughs> Yo. Yup, same. This, yeah. I, um, <laughs> well, I, I, I um, first heard this piece when you did your Ayati performance alongside everyone else. So um, what I really liked about it when I first heard it was like how you integrated so many aspects of of the African culture as well as Black culture here in the United States, and it was really interesting to see how they correlate in a sense because like like you said like as you mentioned that you your hair is long for a black girl but then once you have the braids on it's like it gains even more length and it looks really when when i first saw you in the piece like you mentioned like we saw you i remember being on the i was like oh my god patricia Patricia. Cause it looked it was like it's like a change and a, a change with change comes good things so i saw like i saw like um a different you but as well like oh. now that i see you here now is like similar you and with that i want to ask you um like i already mentioned i like how you touched upon many subjects throughout this piece especially with regards to hair and cultural identity as well as society's view upon black hair so my question is, um, was this like the way you crafted this piece? Was it like intentional or was it like your subconscious playing a role in developing this piece? I think mostly my subconscious. Of course, Madrazo like helped lead me towards the right direction as well. But definitely <laughs> I was just like <laughs> thinking through my mind. OK, remember that time you did your hair a certain way? Why did you do that? I don't mm. know. Yeah. I think it's interesting how when we look at back at some things, we might not see importance in it until we really dive deep and we see yeah. like a story that was there that you didn't originally think was there. So true. Yeah. Yeah, I really didn't think there was a piece there. In fact, I only remembered that whole like why I got my hair straightened in the first place because I think back when I took CNF with Madrazo and like, she just wanted us to like focus on one thing. She's like hair. And at first I was like, messy hair, don't care. Then I was just like, um, <laughs> hair. Yeah, I was just thinking about, wow. Now that I think about it, I really straightened my hair for like all the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't thinking about that before. Like that's something I didn't really consider. I was just like, well, whatever. Like a lot of people straighten their hair. It's no big deal. Mm. So uh, yeah, throughout this, you talk about your relationship with your hair and you also talk about it in comparison to Bianca's and all these different, you know, like, what was that word for it? Incarnations. Yeah. Whoa. I don't know. All these, um, yeah, <laughs> all these different incarnations of hair. So can you talk a little bit more about that and also what's your relationship like now with your hair? Like, do you feel like that was a defining moment that changed it or yeah well, talk us walk us through that your current feels okay currently actually like over the winter break i had braids and 
just no one i guess no one around the school saw me but yeah i had them in i seen you i saw you okay. <laughs> yeah i didn't really want to take them out just yet but i took them out just a little bit mm -hmm. before school started back mm -hmm. but yeah like i feel like now i've come to like this place where i'd like to like switch in between like I don't straighten my hair just because like, mm. oh, because that one guy in third grade, I really want to get his attention or something like that. It's not about that anymore. It's just like, mm. well, I like my hair straight, but I yeah. also appreciate and love and have come to like really love my hair and braids as well. I'm like, yes, mm. braids, I feel fierce. Yes. <laughs> straight yes. hair, I feel yes. nice too. But I no. love that. <laughs> I love that because yeah, you, you, you take this, this, I like that throughout it, you don't necessarily say straight hair is bad because it's not my natural hair you kind of embrace this other side with the braids and you embrace what you like you know but yeah i i like that idea that what you like um doesn't necessarily have to be um something that i don't even know how to explain it you like what you like and that's fine and that's awesome and i think that's cool thank and you yeah i get what you're saying <laughs> especially since like i feel like now too like like everyone's really moving towards natural hair and that's amazing mm -hmm. that's beautiful yeah. but then so at the same time people most majority of people now who have natural hair some of them are also like blah 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 you should really just like stop straightening your hair and like i understand that i get, I get where they're coming from and like i feel like i'm just not there in my hair journey yet mm -hmm. but you know yeah, yeah. i like, feel like at this oh, point just wear your hair journey. the way how you love it you know yeah yeah it's it's there there is an awesome really dope history with natural hair and the movement away from you know chemically treating your hair in this way and another way to fit a different standard yeah. mm -hmm. to fit a more mm, european standard yeah. um but there's also this idea of choice and choice being so beautiful that you can have whatever kind of hair that you like whether it does represent this natural movement and not necessarily representing the eurocentric one anymore because once you take that it's yours now you know so it doesn't have to be about you look like something else and so you can't have that it's and that's that's really cool that you know that yeah i think that you should be able to wear your hair however you please yeah it's like it's yours or something <laughs> people should be restricted <laughs> to like oh no you can't have natural hair <laughs> just to work at this place that's just mm. completely cruel yeah that too on that other spectrum oh. where it's extreme so like some places they're yeah. like oh well we don't really like locks mm. or braids aren't appropriate yeah. oh. however i can't like give you like concrete examples but i've heard stories like yeah that. absolutely oh, interesting. and i think that's sad mm -hmm. people said that it's not like kept yeah that it's not tidy that's fucked up but it's your natural yeah. hair that's yeah it is. hair is hair yeah who's you who are you to say what now i'm angry <laughs> thank <Yeah>. you Patricia. <laughs> i'm so sorry that no. was not my intention no, uh, no it's, it's kind of good to be angry at situations like this situations of injustice but we're going off on tangent we just want to yes. thank you for yeah. being here and, um, amazing. thank you thanks for um being here and being able to like elaborate more with regards to different aspects and controversies with regards to natural hair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Our last story is by someone I had the pleasure of taking CNF in fall 2015 with, Nadia Bechu. Nadia Bechu has been a writing fanatic from the moment she could pick up a pencil. 
She spends most of her free time locked up in her small purple room, reading stories she's already read, and writing about everything and nothing all at the same time. She first took an interest in CNF during fall of 2015 and has received recognition for her award-winning piece, Almonds. Almonds is centered around a strong father-daughter relationship that dismantles over a period of time and a journey that had molded her to be the person she is today. Nadia is currently enrolled at John Jay College studying forensic psychology and plans to graduate a year early in spring 2017. She is channeling her love for literature, writing, and poetry in her own blog where she shares poems, prose, and excerpts from short stories and CNF pieces. Thank you, Edward. Let's take a listen to Nadia's piece entitled Almonds. I was three when I first studied my father's eyes. They look like almonds. It was a late October night. The mix of amber and brown piles of leaves outside my basement window poked through the broken mesh as if they were trying to escape the chilly wind and enter our small, comfy, one-bedroom apartment. That night was the first time I stayed up late enough to see him get home. My mother laid on the left side of her queen bed, sound asleep. Her freshly dyed burgundy hair released a chemical smell that I would eventually grow accustomed to, but that night, it stung my nostrils with each inhale. I rolled away from her to the right side of our bed and I stared at the ceiling before checking the clock. I did this for nearly four hours until the clock struck 11 p.m. I heard the creak of our basement door opening and I scurried underneath a thick white blanket. I rolled back over to my mom's side of the bed, making room for him while pursing my lips until they touched my nose. I hate this stupid smell, I thought. Through a small opening in the blanket, I watched him crawl onto the right side of her bed. I wiggled, shifting my position so that I would face him. I remember the feel of the cool linen sheets on my body every time I moved to a new destination. He flopped down on his side of the bed, his face inches away from mine, and instantly started snoring. For a 23-year-old, he snored awfully loud. I threw the covers off of me with a frown on my face and kicked the bed until I heard the springs in our old mattress pop. How could he possibly be tired? He just got home. He was an accountant at the time. He worked a night shift in a small office in downtown Manhattan, and when he finally did come home, it was only for a brief moment to tell my mother that he was going out with his friends. I wearily lifted my hand and brought it up to my eyes, trying to block out the annoying sound of his snores. Right before I jammed my left index finger into his right eye to wake him up, he lifted his head and he bit me before pretending to fall back asleep again. I gasped, and he opened one eye before squinting as he smiled and adjusted himself to face me. It was dark in our tiny eggshelled colored room. We had a nightlight the shape of a boat. The dark blue ray of light was just enough for me to notice how oval-shaped his eyes were. I traced them as he looked at me, occasionally stopping to slap him with my tiny hands for tricking me into thinking he was asleep. They reminded me of chocolate-covered almonds. His eyes, rich with cocoa-colored darkness, heavenly enough to get lost in, and powdered with absolute sweetness. I must have examined his eyes every time I saw him for the next few months or so. I noticed how those chocolate-covered almonds of his melted with love when he saw my mother, and I studied the ridges of his eyes late at night. They were pure and untainted. Almonds were my favorite shape. His side of the bed was empty most of the night. In January, the door still creaked open at 11pm like always. But in March, it started to shove open at 1.30am. 
In April, it was constantly kicked or punched open at 3 a.m. And on some nights, the door didn't open at all. Wow, his job must be so hard, I told myself. I noticed that I no longer saw my favorite chocolate-covered almonds that much anymore. Instead, I saw soggy clones. The chocolate vanished to reveal maroon-like membranes. The innocence, it dissipated, and the powdered sweetness was drowning under gallons of beer. It seemed like one day he was sweet, and suddenly he was sour. On the days that he did come home, he punched holes in the walls and left his blood smeared on the furniture. His eyes no longer melted with love when he saw my mother. Rather, they were roasted by rage. After one of his outbursts, those which seemed to happen more and more often, there were always three new holes in the walls and more broken picture frames on the floor. My mother's neck could be found in the palms of his hands whenever this happened. A new routine to which I would grow accustomed. The less my father came home, the more my mom worked. She was balancing the role of a mother and a cashier at Burlington on 23rd Street. I was homeless also because I finally started kindergarten and after school my father's parents would pick me up. Although we lived on different floors in the same house, being with them made me feel out of place. I was a quiet kid who liked privacy and they were outgoing and loud. They also seemed incapable of saying anything good about other people. When they were at a loss for curses and insults, they would brag about everything they had. It was sometime during the middle of my kindergarten year that I had first cursed at them, like I always heard them do. Grandpa, totally spies is on! I screamed after school one day. Spies? Ugh, why isn't there a brown one? Those kiss my ass producers. Ugh, I rolled my eyes. He would not ruin totally spies for me. The episode was coming to an end, so I flipped through the channels and heard Dora's theme song. I turned the television off and threw the remote in the corner. I hated Dora's voice. Right then, my grandmother walked through the front door with two handfuls of grocery bags. I helped her take them into the kitchen and cleaned up my mess before she started yelling. I would have rather heard Dora's voice. Where's Ram? She asked my grandfather. Uh, I don't know. He hasn't been home in a few days. I am so tired of his bullshit, she exploded. He wouldn't have done this before he got married to that bitch. She doesn't even know him. She doesn't even know how to keep her husband in line. I knew they were a blasted mistake. She corrupted him and... Shut up, I said loudly. My mother is not a bitch, I thought, and my father's behavior is not her fault. I somehow knew that, even at the age of five. All you ever do is blame her. What about him? She doesn't own him. It's his fucking decision not to be here. Even though this was the kind of language I learned here, I still got in trouble. If we were back in Guyana, they said, I would have been beaten publicly for disrespecting my elders. I would later find out that my mother often worked so much to save money to rent another house approximately two and a half blocks away. When I was six, she came home one afternoon and she told me to pack my bags. She said, I rented another place. Don't tell him where. I remember nothing about the move, nor do I remember living in that new house for a year and a half. It was as if it didn't exist to me or that it never happened. The homes I do remember are the basement of my grandparents' house and the second floor of the house after the mystery move. My mother packed our bags and we left. We waited until he wasn't home because we both knew how he would act. We would either be hurt or threatened. We had our belongings in the moving van and we were ready to leave when my mom slouched and looked down on me. 
Listen, we're gonna wait for your father. You have to say goodbye no matter what. You have to know I won't ever stop him from seeing you. Even though we aren't together, you can see him whenever you want, okay? It's your choice, she said. And so we waited. Thankfully, he was home at a reasonable time that afternoon. We waited on the front steps of his parents' house and we told him we were leaving. There was an exchange of yelling and moments of watching my mother being dragged back into the house before freeing herself and running to the van. As we left, we watched his marred chocolate-covered almonds disappear. I never once blamed her for leaving. She was a short 4 foot 11 inch woman with a newfound pride, a quality that would only grow with each passing year, a quality that I would eventually inherit. When my mother and I left, he began dating the same woman that prevented him from coming home all those nights that I waited up for him. He married her now, and they moved into a house near my elementary school. For some reason or another, he asked to spend some days with me. I started to love his chocolate-covered almonds again. Now, he would joke with me when he took me to school twice a year. And when I came over every few months, he would treat me the way that he used to. But as soon as he left for work, I was alone with his new wife. She had smirks etched into her skin when she looked at me while we were alone. Nadia, she screamed. Yeah. Come eat food, she ordered. I stared at the bowl of rice she placed in front of me. I hated her food, but I wanted to be polite, so I ate almost half of it. Why aren't you eating? She said flatly. Uh, I'm full. If you don't eat it, each grain of rice will turn into baby snakes, she said with a cooing voice. And those snakes? They will grow and grow every night until you go home. They'll follow you, and as soon as you go home, they'll find your mother and kill her. I never left her food untouched again. But when I ate slowly, instead of stories, I was greeted by smacks on the face or hits over the head to eat more quickly. I tried to tell my father, but he never believed me. A while after, when he came home from work, his almonds were drunk in replicas again anyway. His new wife would yell at him as I sat in the corner behind the staircase watching the events unfold before me. His eyes would shut so tightly that I could almost hear them crack right before his face went blank and he charged at her. I saw this for months. Him punching her across the jaw or kicking her in the stomach, it became so normal that sometimes I would just tune it out and do homework in the same kitchen they were fighting in. I stopped going there after the night he broke a glass plate over her head. It wasn't until the middle of sixth grade that I would see those chocolate-covered almonds again. They were stuck to me, embedded in my skin. They were my own eyes and they looked just like his. I'd never noticed before then, not until the once-a-year dinner party with his parents that Christmas, when they pointed at me and laughed. You look just like him, they say. Hopefully you don't turn out like him. This was odd coming from them, especially since they've spent the last seven years blatantly blaming my mother for letting him go out, as if she gave him the ghost sign to run rampant through clubs and end up in someone else's bed, as if she turned him into the drunken cheater he became. I'd eventually spend the rest of that night hiding in the bathroom and trying to scrub my eyes off of my face. 
I saw his chocolate-covered almonds scattered between the years as he oozed excuse after excuse for the sake of temporary reconciliation. I would later catch on to his technique, and I'd eventually learn that the timing of his appearance was always convenient. How he only seemed to reach out to me when he wanted something, like to borrow my birthday money, which he would never return. Sometimes I hid my chocolate-covered almonds behind my glasses. They were now trapped beneath a square burgundy frame that made them look smaller than they actually were. I refused to let people see them anymore, even if they were in plain sight. It was easier to act as if they weren't rotting from the weight of life. It was easier to act as if I hadn't acquired the same qualities I hated from him. His anger, his jealousy, and the way he was addicted to only the things that harmed him. I realized that I was becoming him and I wanted nothing more than to stop the process of my chocolate almonds decay, to preserve their decadence for as long as I possibly could. But, for some reason or another, it was hard to let go of them. Both of our almonds were now damaged, rancid, and coated in layers of mold. My sophomore year of high school, I took a Wednesday off in early September for a trip to the eye doctor's. I sat in the examining seat, peering into the thick crystal lens of the refractor, trying not to cry as a tsunami of light from the slit lamp burned my pupils. You have beautiful eyes, my doctor said, the darkest eyes I've ever seen. They're almost black. She reached into her cabinet after the examination and retrieved my new contacts. I took the package and studied them before shaking my head. Do you happen to have my prescription in color? I asked. She nodded and brought them to me as she ushered me to the nearest mirror. I slid the caramel-colored contact into my right eye and adjusted to the feel and cool sensation. I stared at my reflection, noticing the contrast in color. It's perfect, I thought. I watched as the familiarity of the chocolate disappeared and turned into a light hazel. I wanted something that wouldn't remind me of how dark our almonds had become. When the change in color wasn't enough, I found myself wanting to trade them for pecans. I wished that the roundness of my eyes could be replaced by a sharp oblong form with just a little bit of makeup. I doused them in it, creating new lines as I ached for some sort of miraculous real shape transformation that I knew would never happen. It didn't stop me from trying. I walked to my local no-name 24-hour drugstore in the middle of the night looking for a shade of black that would match the color of revenge if revenge had a color, of course. My father had spent years bragging about me. He told everyone how great I was in school and how I always did the right thing, making no attempt to hide that he was taking the credit for my mother's hard work. He told them that I was his daughter and that he could tell by our eyes. I knew how upset he'd be once he realized our trademark was gone. And so, I scanned the dimly lit aisle for my secret weapon, Maybelline, L'Oreal, CoverGirl, Sally Hansen, Wet n Wild. Aha! I muttered under my breath. A wry smirk crept onto my face as I picked up the Revlon's Colorstay Liquid Liner all day wear in blackest black. I walked to the only clerk and handed him $10 before finding my way home and tiptoeing back into bed. The following weekend, I must have used a whole roll of Bounty and two bottles of the same eyeliner. Finally, after watching almost 37 YouTube tutorials, I mastered the perfect cat eye. I wore eyeliner to school every day for the rest of high school, waking up an extra half an hour earlier to make sure they were perfect. But 
by the end of the day my makeup washed off and i was aware of my eyes original and dreadful state they still resembled his they would always resemble his the next time i saw those chocolate covered almonds they were as small as pine nuts but still the same almond shape they were brand new and reincarnated chocolate covered almonds fresh out of a soft baby blue package Seeing my newborn half-baby brother's eyes reminded me of the first time I studied my father's. They were rich with color, heavenly innocent, and powdered with sweetness. I watched the way his eyes glistened with a newfound curiosity during the day, and I studied their tiny edges late at night. They were pure and untainted, not bitter at all. Almonds were my favorite shape again. The last time I saw my brother's eyes, they were as big as walnuts, but still shaped like almonds. I noticed how the chocolate hardened with his burdens, and how they were wrapped in a light drizzle of honey-colored hope. I knew he had seen far too much for his age. I knew what he'd seen, because I'd seen it too. I knew he had no choice but to watch our father hurt his mother. Although I hated his mother, I would never wish my father's wrath on anyone. I didn't even wish it on her when she stopped letting me see my little brother or when she took him away forever. He was barely five when I saw him last. He was on his way to Bangladesh to live with his mother's family for a while. I watched his chocolate-covered almonds disappear in the mixed assortment of eyes in the airport, and I wondered when I would see them again. I found myself searching for my brother's eyes at family gatherings and dinner parties, events that were hosted by our mutual grandparents. And when I was exhausted, I tried to find the original package. I combed bars and pool halls and casinos searching for my father's eyes. I wondered if they were somehow floating in a glass of cheap imitation wine or peeling from the smoke of a freshly rolled blunt. And I hoped with all my might that somehow they would find their way back to me in the same wholesome condition they once were, back when I first noticed them, back when he'd come home at night, when he'd pretend to sleep only to surprise me with a gentle bite on my finger, when he'd love my mother and allow his almonds to soften at just the sight of her, or when he didn't steal or hurt people. I wanted that back for all of us. The richness, the innocence, and the sweetness, but I knew it would never happen. After all, what's rotten only continues to decay. There's no turning back, no getting better, and there's certainly no hiding it or what it caused. Goodness, the story is amazing, and actually, one of the f is the first creative nonfiction story I've ever read from a student. So it was so good to hear mm. again. Thank you so much for being Thanks here, for Nadia. Being here, no problem. <laughs> so I love the symbolism, the symbolism of eyes in your story, mm -hmm. and how beautifully you describe all the eyes in your story, Thank and you. it kind of shows us the state that your father is in, like either being sober or not sober, and the state of like how you feel about him in that moment think that's really a beautiful thing that's going on in your piece um when you originally wrote this was this already there or did you add that in like throughout edits like what was the writing process of that uh we actually had an assignment where we had to imitate one of the 
artist or one of the mm-hmm. authors that we wanted to do for that oh assignment. Oh, is this for the um, micro? Bets, right? Yes. Bets. I yeah. remember this. <laughs> so I imitated her for the micro assignment and then it just kept getting longer and longer. I, start, I started out with it being one page and it was broken up by like four pieces. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, it needs to be longer. And then I just kept editing it throughout the whole, pro- mm. throughout the whole semester and it just grew to like mm. eight pages. Wow. Wow. Oh into a very beautiful piece <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so um i was wondering like what is like your current relationship with your father as of now uh it's definitely better than it was mm-hmm. once um right now he's on the right track and w- our relationship has it's not to the point where it was now we talk more and we see each other more often than twice a year mm-hmm. so <laughs> have yeah. you have you seen your brother too yeah, he just came back from Bangladesh, so mm-hmm. now every Monday and Wednesday I go over and I tutor him and I help him <gasps> with homework. Oh, that's sweet. And we don't live together, but I still try to see him as much as I can. That's really awesome. That's nice. <laughs> it's a really positive juxtaposition from what we saw in the story, so yeah. that's really nice to hear. That is really good to hear. So um, what do you want listeners to take away from this story? That not everything is black and white. Um mm-hmm there is a lot of pain in people's stories that you don't really know about and like i don't know i just think that people need to know that not every relationship is good or bad it can Mm -hmm. get better or it can get worse and Mm -hmm. you just have to like work at it yeah Yeah. for sure everyone saw that in your story because you did win an award for the story am i right (laughs) yeah so almonds actually won an honorable mention in the best creative nonfiction essay category of the 2015-16 English Department's Awards Contest. Wow. Damn, son. Damn. <laughs> that is a huge name for an award. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, in yeah, how did you remember all that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just with my memory, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nadia. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you for you. the story. The story was amazing. Thanks for coming. Mm-hmm. Thank you for having Thanks. me. That concludes our episode, Mare Mare. We are all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. We like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. And a very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night!